An upbeat, artistic, and hardworking university student gets off work at a shopping mall in Grand Forks, North Dakota. But the rest of her evening doesn't go as planned. What happened on that frigid November evening that would shake the community to its core? This is the case of Drew Shadeen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of Crime Cave. I'm Christy, and when I was narrowing down which crime I was going to cover next, I realized it was exactly 20 years to the day that the Drew Shadeen case happened, so the case kind of chose itself. Good or bad, I've always been kind of like Rain Man when it comes to remembering crime dates, and this one, November 22nd, 2003, I specifically remember going off to dinner with my dad. It was a really snowy night, and we went to this little restaurant called Grandma Sally's. The news about Drew had gone national, and I remember thinking how lucky we were to be having such an innocent, benign little family outing, and I couldn't fathom what her family must be going through. I knew I was eventually going to tell this story. So now, at the 20-year mark, let's get to know Drew Shadeen. Drew Katrina Shadeen was born September 26, 1981, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Linda Walker and Alan Shadeen. She had an older brother, Sven, and when they were toddlers, their parents divorced but stayed on good terms and were both equally involved in Drew's upbringing. Drew was very creative and artistic at an early age. She gravitated toward pottery, sketching, and painting, earning her the nickname Doodles. She was also athletic, playing volleyball, basketball, and golf. Drew was known for her vibrant, positive personality and compassion. She was even elected homecoming queen her senior year at Pico Lakes High School, where she graduated in the spring of 2000. When you look at photos of Drew, the first things that stand out are her bright blue eyes and beaming smile. She was absolutely stunning, but she was way more than a pretty face. By the fall of 2003, Drew was a 22-year-old graphic arts major at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks. She had a close group of friends and was dating a young man named Chris Lang. Drew was a member of the Gamma Phi Beta sorority and did volunteer work, sharing her love of reading with underprivileged kids, helping with UND's Clothesline Project, which is dedicated to victims and survivors of violence, coordinating bowling outings, and fundraising for the American Diabetes Association. Drew had planned her dream trip to Australia for the following April, so although she was taking a full load of classes, she still worked two jobs to help pay for the trip. On Saturday, November 22, 2003, Drew worked her shift at the Victoria's Secret store inside Columbia Mall in Grand Forks. She was off by 4 p.m. and was scheduled for a 9 p.m. shift at her second job, El Rocco, where she was a server. Since she had some time in between, she strolled the mall and entered Marshall Fields at 421. She leisurely walked through the store, eventually buying a purse, and at 5 p.m., she heads out of the store and back into the mall. As she walks, she calls her boyfriend, Chris, who was in the Twin Cities moving into a new apartment. Four minutes into their conversation, Chris heard Drew say, Okay, okay. And the call abruptly ended. 
Chris didn't give it much thought when the call was disconnected, assuming the cell service was just patchy, and went back to the business of moving into his new place. But several hours later, he received another call from Drew's phone. And this time, he heard only static, wind, and the sound of buttons being pressed. It was around that same time that he received a phone call from Drew's roommate, Meg Fleetgraff, stating Drew's work had called her and said that she hadn't shown up for her shift at El Rocco. This was very unlike Drew, and repeated calls to her phone went unanswered. Chris decided it was time to call Drew's mom to see if she had heard anything. She told him she hadn't, and then called Drew's father, Alan, to let him know what was going on. Upon hearing this, he jumped into his pickup truck and made the five-hour drive from the Twin Cities to Grand Forks. He found Drew's 1994 Oldsmobile still sitting in the parking lot after the mall was closed. Alan sat with the car all night in case she came back. Her family then decided to report Drew as a missing person. The police weren't immediately alarmed, stating that since Drew was a 22-year-old college student, in their experience, it's not unusual for a young person to just want to take a break. But when they began to inspect her car, their level of concern immediately ratcheted up. Laying on the seat was the purse that she had just bought at Marshall Fields and her wallet. Furthermore, on the ground next to her car was a leather sheath for a knife. Detectives were now on high alert and suspected foul play. Although there were no security cameras in the mall parking lot, investigators reviewed hours of footage inside the mall and were able to clearly spot Drew as she shopped at Marshall Fields. The call she placed to Chris began at 5 o'clock as she was leaving the store and lasted four minutes before the call dropped. One of the investigators decided to do a little experiment. He started a stopwatch and walked from Marshall Fields at a normal pace for four minutes. That was exactly enough time to reach Drew's car, which they now believed was the crime scene. Meanwhile, Drew's family and friends immediately came together to create a command center of sorts, posting flyers and forming search parties. With Drew's stepfather, Sid, handing out sandwiches, socks, and other clothing items to volunteers, all while grappling with the grim reality that this was likely an abduction. Investigators continued to review the extensive video footage from inside the mall, specifically looking for anyone that looked as if they were more interested in people watching than merchandise. One particular individual that stood out to them was a paunchy middle-aged man who spent a good deal of time at Target, which was one of the mall's anchor stores. He appeared to stroll haphazardly through different aisles, not looking at anything in particular. And then at 3.41, the man sat on a bench right near the exit of Target, watching people leave. Eleven minutes went by until he suddenly got up, put on a pair of gloves, and appeared to follow a blonde woman with a shopping cart out into the parking lot. As the man walked through the vestibule, he looked straight up and directly at the video camera. Just a few moments later, he inexplicably came back into the store. During the investigation, it was revealed that 60 sex offenders were registered in that area. Three days passed, and on November 25th, a woman's shoe was found outside of Crookston, Minnesota, 
30 miles east of the mall, which was determined to be Drew's. Police then decided to narrow their list of sex offenders to ones located in the Crookston area. That brought the number from 60 to four. As they pulled up the four mugshots, they were struck by one in particular. The face in the photo was identical to the man in the Target surveillance video. It was Alfonso Rodriguez Jr., a 50-year-old level three sex offender who had spent over half his life in prison for sex crimes against women, having recently served 23 years for aggravated rape and kidnapping. He had just been released six months earlier and was living with his mother in Crookston. Alfonso was tracked down at his construction job and brought in for questioning while police obtained a warrant to search his car. He denied having anything to do with Drew's disappearance and in fact said he was at the movies seeing Once Upon a Time in Mexico during the time in question. However, that film was not playing anywhere in the vicinity on the day Drew disappeared. Not only was he caught in a lie, but analysis of the interior of his car revealed a lock blade knife that was soaking in a cleaning solution hidden in a wheel well. They also found blood that was determined to be Drew's. On December 1st, 2003, Alfonso was arrested in connection with Drew's disappearance, although he repeatedly claimed his innocence. Jerry Moreno, a police officer in Crookston who grew up with the Rodriguez family, said he had gotten a call earlier that year from Alfonso's sister asking for help to keep her brother behind bars. Even his own family was worried that if he was released from prison, he might hurt someone else. I'd like to mention something about Drew's family. Although at that point in the investigation, large-scale searches had diminished and the extremely cold weather conditions were taking effect, Drew's parents, brother, and extended family and friends were fiercely single-minded in their search for her physically searching every day in the snow and also hiring their own private investigator. They did their best to keep the faith that possibly Drew was being held somewhere still alive. But on April 17th of 2004, when the snow drifts finally began to melt, those hopes were dashed. Instead of being on her dream trip to Australia, Drew's body was found in a ditch just west of Crookston. She was face down, hands tied behind her back, a grocery bag over her head, and a rope around her neck. She had been beaten, stabbed, raped, and her throat cut. Her father, Alan, addressed the crowd at a news conference later that afternoon, thanking everyone who had helped search, stating, it's been five months of insanity for us as a family. We were waiting for that call, and when it came, we all stopped living for a second. Alfonso Rodriguez was charged with kidnapping and murder, and was ultimately found guilty on August 30th of 2006. Although he initially received the death penalty, the very same judge that heard the case, Ralph R. Erickson, overturned his own sentence stating that the defendant's mental health evaluation was limited and inadequate, which subsequently denied him a possible insanity defense. Alfonso Rodriguez is now living out his days at Coleman II, 
a high-security penitentiary in Sumterville, Florida. Drew's good friend, Meg Flategraff, said that her legacy has been lasting, her life wasn't for nothing, and she has made a large impact on the community. A scholarship in Drew's name was set up at the University of North Dakota. An annual golf tournament is held in Drew's hometown of Pico Lakes each summer, a fundraiser that promotes awareness of violence against women and children, and also awards a $5,000 college scholarship to a Pico Lakes high school student. And finally, new legislation was launched in her honor the Drew Shadeen National Sex Offender Public Registry in 2006, which provides the public with free, immediate access to all jurisdictions' sex offender registries, from one inquiry to a single website, to help promote public safety. Drew's positive spirit appears to live on in those who knew her. A good friend of hers said, every time there's a pink sunrise and a pink sunset, and every time someone gives me a random, huge smile, I think about Drew. And now for today's listener question. Okay, today's question is from Stu. And he wants to know, has there been a case that I've covered so far that has really stuck with me? Yes, several, actually but I'll just name a couple. I'd say number one would probably be the Cheshire, Connecticut murders, episode 14, about the home invasion of the Pettit family. Let's see, episode 10, Samantha Josephson, the young woman who was about to go to law school, free ride to law school, and she got into a car that she thought was her Uber, and she got stabbed over 120 times. Yeah, so no shortage of things that'll freak me out on a daily basis. But at any rate, I think it's important to get their stories out. So I'll deal with it. Thanks for your question, Stu. Hey, everybody, it's Ray the Roadie. And this is Hollywood Mike with the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast coming to you from the Illinois Rock and Roll Museum on Route 66 in Joliet, Illinois, where once a week we are interviewing local musicians and singer-songwriters. And the podcast itself covers a wide range of topics, including, but not limited to, the history of rock and roll in Chicago, the current state of the scene, and the challenges and opportunities facing musicians today. So join us every Tuesday for a new exciting episode of the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast. Thanks for joining me. This episode of Crime Cave has been brought to you by Fortress Defense Consultants, providing security consulting for educational institutions, corporate facilities, and houses of worship, as well as pepper spray, situational awareness, and defensive firearms training for police and private citizens. Find Fortress on the web at FortressDefense.com. Contact Fortress directly at 708-522-8060 or email them at info at FortressDefense.com. Avoid being the subject of a future episode of Crime Cave. Train with Fortress today. Until next time.